We're continuing our series this morning on the second coming of Jesus. Matthew chapter 24. So if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 24. And there's a little change. I decided to make this change after the bulletin was finished. So it's not Phyllis's fault, it's mine. But we're going to be reading verses 3 through 28 this morning. I think in the bulletin it says 3 through 14. Matthew chapter 24. If you have... If you're able to do this and you have your scriptures, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 3, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. When he, Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will this be? If you remember from last week, if you were here, he had, they had just asked him about the, he had just prophesied that the temple was going to be destroyed. So they ask him three questions here. Tell us, when will this be, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? So three questions. Jesus answered them, beware that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one, I am the one who will save you. And they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will hand you over to be tortured and will put you to death, talking to the disciples, to to Christians. And you'll be hated by all nations, by all Gentiles, by all non-believers because of my name. Then many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love, the chesed, the loyalty, the faithfulness of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the Gentiles, to all the nations, to all the unbelievers, and then the end will come. So, when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, as was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down to take what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great suffering, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs, false saviors, and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. Last week we began with Jerry Seinfeld's discussion of horses. This week we'll begin in another place. Let's try that again. Somehow we've entered what seems to be a temporal causality loop. We think we're stuck in a specific fragment in time and that we've been repeating that same fragment over and over again. 
Is this what's causing our deja vu? Yes, but it's more than that. In deja vu, you only think you're repeating events. We actually are. Our theory is this. Every time the loop begins again, everything resets itself and starts all over. We don't remember anything that happened before, so each time through the loop, we think it's the first. You mean we could have come into this room, sat at this table, and had this conversation a dozen times already? A dozen, a hundred. It's impossible to tell. We could have been trapped here for hours, days, maybe years. I know that's Star Trek. I had to do it. Uh, but for those of you who have seen that episode, it, maybe it'll make a little bit more sense. But uh, in that particular episode, the writers imagined a time in which they, the, the crew gets caught in this loop that keeps repeating over and over again. It takes them dozens and dozens of times through it to realize that they're just repeating events over and over again. In some ways, the scriptures tell us that that's true of our experience in this world. That as much as we feel like everything is new all the time, the truth is we're just repeating the same day over and over and over again. Now I'm going to, if you've been here with us for a little while, what I'm about to say will not be shocking to you. But if you're not, well, you know, buckle up. Here we go. Uh, Take a look at Genesis. Uh, If you have your Bibles there, turn to the beginning. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so not too difficult um, to find. We know that uh, we've been going over the story of creation over and over and over again. And in the story of creation, there are how many days of creation? Yell it out. Six. And what happens on the seventh day? God rests. So what hap- that's in chapter one. So that gives us the, kind of the full picture of creation. And God rests on the seventh day. He calls everything that he made very good. And it looks like things are as they should be. But then we go back in Genesis chapter 2. That's where you should be if you want to turn there. In Genesis chapter 2, we kind of go back to day 6. And it starts to talk more specifically about how God created humanity. And so, if you're just reading Genesis 1, it looks like humanity just kind of popped into being, right? I mean, God said, let us make a being in our own image, in our own likeness, and there they were, right? But we find out in Genesis 2 that the process was more complicated than is indicated in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 2, we're told that God shaped humanity out of the dust and breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. And... A, a man rose out of that first and then God decides that it's not good for the man to be alone and so he goes through a process of bringing animals to the man and no, no helper is found for him, no ezer, no, no, no partners probably as good a word as any is, is there and so God divides humanity in half. Right? Takes man from man and creates male and female. You know the story. So as we're, some of you know the story, now all of you do. So as we're talking through that, we're reading through the story, are you like me waiting to find out when day seven is going to come? Where is it? The next thing that happens is they start hanging out with a serpent and the serpent tells them that they, that they should eat of a fruit that God told them they shouldn't eat and they eat it and then they're thrown out of Eden and then they have children and the oldest son kills the younger son. Where is day seven? When is the day that they get to have a Sabbath with God? I mean, we already heard in Genesis chapter one that the seventh day came right after day six. Why isn't it in Genesis after day six? Some of you are saying, well, they just didn't tell us. That's a significant oversight. That must have been quite a day. Not to say anything about it. Well, the truth is that as the scriptures unfold, humanity is ever looking to get into God's rest. 
Humanity is ever trying to get into heaven. Into the time of peace that will last forever. Trying forever to find day seven. But we have forever been trapped on day six. So some of you have asked me this question in the past. I've never fully answered it or responded to it. Some feel like Genesis is not very accurate because it says, God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge, good and evil, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And I've had countless people say to me, well, that wasn't true because nobody died on that day. Guess what? It's the same day. We're still on day six. We've never gotten off of it. The book of Hebrews picks this up. Some of you who know the book of Hebrews, I know some of you here love the book of Hebrews. You remember how it talks about heaven? What does it call it? God's rest. Sabbath. Day seven. In some ways, humanity has been living the same day over and over and over again. Some of you like the movie uh, Groundhog Day, right? With Bill Murray, where he lives that same day over and over and over again. That is what we have been doing. Over and over and over and over again, we've been living the same day. You've been living the same day. You're born in the morning. You walk through the day. And you die at night. And then you rise again. Over and over and over and over. Scriptures tell us in the new heavens, there'll be no, that cycle will be broken. You won't sleep. There'll be no night. What you're practicing is dying and being born again. Every single day. It's why the early church really believed you should read the scriptures in the morning. Because every day should begin with Sinai. Should begin with Jesus. Should begin with Revelation. And now is this a day where you're going to live into rebellion. And, and find an absence of God. And every day you're repeating this cycle. You. And every culture is repeating this cycle. And every family is repeating this cycle. And every nation is repeating this cycle. Over and over again. And this wheel will turn until God's grace has run out. And the final night falls. And resurrection follows. So this is the wheel of history. According to the prophets of Israel. Who wrote the 39 books of the Old Testament. And the apostles of Jesus. Who wrote or informed the 27 books of the new. Begins with God revealing to us who we are from whom we've come, how we should live, what his expectations are for us. And then humanity always seems to live into rebellion. And then we fall into a period, and this rebellion period is excessively long. God is so gracious that the period of rebellion, if I were drawing this right, would probably take up two-thirds of the circle. Because God, in the period of rebellion, when humanity is turning from him, sends prophets and teachers to try and turn the people back to revelation. He does not want to enter into the blue that waters this next part. He does not want that to happen. So he keeps trying to turn us back and turn us back and turn us back. Some turn, but most don't. And then we enter into a period in which God removes the hedge of protection he's placed over 
uh, humanity and life on earth and the earth gets more chaotic and more destructive. Evil begins to reign. And then people who have eyes to see, who refuse to turn when they were in rebellion, begin to repent. And that's what the red is. And then after a period of repentance, a period of turning for the people of the earth back to God, then there is a period of restoration. And then we're back to the top. This is the cycle that repeats over and over and over again. Now, this is where you could get confused, and I hope you won't. I hope you'll listen. So I've narrated how your life every day is a small wheel, how your family's life can be a slightly bigger wheel, how your culture's wheel can be slightly bigger than that. But the truth is that there, are, there is an enormous wheel of history, that there's nothing you or I can do to stop it. It's got, it will go through twice in the history of the earth, according to the scriptures. The first cycle is complete, and we are in the second. So the first cycle is narrated in the book of Genesis and ends in the book of Exodus. It begins in the Garden of Eden and then falls into human rebellion. God brings judgment and the withdrawal of the barriers for life that he set up in Genesis 1, which brings the flood. And then he moves into a time of humanity turning from its wickedness. Humanity tries to do that on its own with the Tower of Babel, but in godless ways. But most of that happens through the life of and calling of Abraham as humanity begins to turn again to the God it has forsaken. And then that ends with the people in slavery in Egypt. And then the period of restoration begins as God delivers them from slavery in Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai in the wilderness between modern day Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Israel and Palestine and he gives them the law and then the cycle begins again Sinai and then into rebellion and then into withdrawal we are in the red Jesus is the opportunity for humanity to repent this is what the scriptures call the day of salvation and we are waiting for the restoration of all things and the new heavens and the new earth So if you think about the way history has rolled, we're way deep into this thing. We've almost completed the second cycle, but God is so merciful, allowing so much time for repentance that it's been a very long time. But Jesus will come somewhere near the end of the red. And he'll reign on earth for a thousand years according to Revelation, which is the period in which humanity is restored, where we begin to again realize why we are created. He shows us how life on this earth was supposed to be. And then, judgment. So those are the big cycles. And I know that's, that's a little confusing, but it shouldn't be. If you've been reading your scriptures, that should make so much sense of what you've been reading. If you haven't been reading your scriptures, I apologize. There's nothing I can do to download that information into your brain. But I can tell you this. If you haven't read through them before, this last year we've read together, a group of us here from the church and some who aren't part of the church have read the scriptures together and commented on them sporadically throughout the year. I'm going to be starting that again on January 1st. But I'm I'm going to set up two different groups. One is for reading the Bible through in a year. The other is for reading the Bible through in three years. So if the one year thing is just too fast, maybe you try the three-year group. We'll have two of them. You don't have to do it with us, but we need to start reading or else we're not going to see these patterns. The saddest thing is that the church should know the season it's in, but too few of us read the fullness of the scriptures to have any idea. Here's the verse that's going to guide our conversation today. It comes from Matthew twenty-four, twelve. We read it together. 
And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love, the chesed of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the story of what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. Things will get worse before they get better. But if you persevere, you will see the fulfillment of the promises of God. Today we're going to look at Jesus' narration of the wheel that will turn until he returns. And interestingly enough, in the passage we read together, Jesus fully narrates two complete cycles of the wheel, both that were fulfilled by the end of the second century A.D., So we're going to look at the first turn of the wheel that occurred within the lifetime of Jesus' apostles. The second, we're going to discuss the successive turns that are well documented in the early centuries of the Christian church. And third, I'm going to do my best to help us to understand where we are likely today. Let's look at the first turn of the wheel. Look at Matthew 24. This is verses 4 through 14. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but I want you to think about the wheel. I don't have it up on the screen again, but think about the wheel and think about where the things Jesus is describing would fall on it. And you'll notice that he's narrating the same cycle. Verse 4 of 24. Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah. So Jesus brings the revelation, but rebellion begins. And the rebellion he narrates is, folks will say they're the Messiah. They're the Savior. They're going to rescue you. You can have a lot of false kings and false heroes and all that sort of thing. That's the rebellion. And they'll lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. So again, God is going to withdraw some of the walls that protect us from the chaos of creation's origin. And it's going to get rough. Wars, rumors of wars, uh, those things have to happen. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes. and very, This is all the beginning of the birth pangs as God withdraws. Then the world will hand you over to be tortured and will put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. They'll feel abandoned by God. Then many will fall away because they don't sense God's presence and they feel that he is not with them. Many will fall away and they'll begin to betray one another and hate one another. And in that context, many more false prophets will arise (coughs) and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, the one who remains in repentance, turned to God, will be saved. And this good news of the kingdom, God will use all of this, will be proclaimed through the world as a testimony to all the nations. And so all of this, that it looks like God's absence, will be used by God to spread the gospel into all the world. And then the end will come. That's what Jesus says. That's the first narration of the cycle. And here it is. I just talked you through it. I'll do it quickly. Jesus' ministry... This is well documented in the scriptures that very early on in the early church, false teachers and prophets rose up and they began spreading contrary doctrines. There were two primary heresies in the Bible that are described at that time. The first was the argument that you had to first become Jewish before you could come to Jesus. And so those were called Judaizers. And Paul writes a lot of letters to say, no, 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 you have to come to Jewish teaching to know Jesus because Jesus was Jewish and God chose the Jewish people. But you do not have to 
convert to Judaism in order to follow Jesus. That's not the gospel. Gentiles can come. There is room for Gentiles. But the false teachers were saying, no, you had to become Jewish first. The other major heresy in the early church was the teachers who went out and said that Jesus did not rise bodily from the dead. That salvation is a spiritual thing and it's not a material thing. It has nothing to do with your bodies or your lives. It has everything to do with your hearts and your intentions. That was a heresy. We've been dealing with that heresy in 1 Corinthians. And there were false teachers out there propagating that. So that happens almost immediately, just as Jesus predicted it would. And then the church gets persecuted by two different groups. First, the Jewish people persecute them because they're teaching about a false Messiah, according to their view. And then in the 60s, this is within 30 years of Jesus' resurrection, Nero begins to persecute the church. It's a short persecution, but it is vicious and it is terrible. And Jesus is not exaggerating when he says there's been nothing like it. The stories of the Roman historians tell us that Christians were crucified alive and set on fire to light the way to Rome. It's a terrible, terrible person. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. And then in 70 AD, the Judaizing heresy is put to rest finally because... God allows the Romans to destroy the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And after that, it's impossible to obey the Torah. And so the church can no longer struggle with whether they should become Jewish. Because nobody can be Jewish anymore. Not in the way they had for thousands of years. Because the temple is gone. That happens during this period of repentance. And then... At the end of the first century, we begin to see the books of the scriptures being collected and codified as the church realizes it has to establish itself in the teachings of the apostles in order to know who the false teachers are. And then Jesus prophesied that all of this would happen in the lifetime of the apostles, and he was right. That's why he says later on in the passage, truly I tell you this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. They all did take place in the lifetime of the apostles. The apostle John lived to see the solidification of the apostles' unique status. So that's one cycle. So what Jesus is saying is, I could return then. And most of the New Testament writers thought he would. They thought after it went around one time, he was coming. And you can see that in Paul. But he didn't come. But if we had read Jesus closely, we would have seen that he narrated another cycle. But he is always at the gates between the red and the yellow. And he was in the first century, but he chose not to return. Were you listening last week? Why did he not return after the first turn of the wheel? Grace. He had not given up on us yet. At every turn of the wheel, though, Jesus is at the gates. He has not yet chosen to pass through them, but he is always at the gates at every turn of the wheel. So let's look at the successive turn of the wheel. The one after this one, and it's very interesting. If you're in Genesis, you want to get back to Matthew 24. Am I losing y'all? I know this is weird stuff. But it's necessary. Look at verse 15 of Matthew 24. So when you see the desolating sacrilege... Notice how I asked you if I was losing you. I didn't even look up to see. So when you, are the des- when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, as was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So this goes back to uh, Daniel chapter 12. You can read that on your own. It's really long. Let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one 
on the housetop must not go down to the lake to take what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight might not be in winter. And he goes on and on. This is another cycle that he is describing. This happens in the second century. So the abomination that causes desolation is an idol that's set up in the temple of God. So that did not happen in 70 AD. It had happened in the past. That's what Daniel was talking about. Jesus indicates it was going to happen again. And it did. It happened in the 130s. So here we have Jewish Christians at this time, about 100 years after Jesus ascended into the heavens. uh, Jewish Christians are still worshiping in synagogues. There's still not a deep divide between... uh, the Jewish congregations and Jewish Christian congregations. They're still worshiping there. But we have a man. So I'll I'll tell you the whole story. We'll do this as quick as I can. So Emperor Hadrian of Rome decided that he wanted to rebuild Jerusalem. Remember, it had been destroyed in 70 AD. So he decides he's going to rebuild Jerusalem. And in order to do that, he decides he's going to make it a secular city. So he gives it a name. Let me see if I can find it. Thank you, John. See if I can find it in my notes. He gives it the name uh, Aelia Capitolina. And he rebuilds the Temple Mount. And on the place of the ancient Jewish temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, he sets up a temple to Jupiter. There is no way that Jewish people were going to let that stand. And that is the abomination that causes desolation. It's exactly the thing that Antiochus Epiphanes had done years before that Daniel had predicted. And so here, in the one, early 130s, Hadrian sets up this idol. Well, the Jewish people go nuts. And a man named Simon bar Kokhva says he's the Messiah, says he's going to deliver the people and set up a Jewish nation, and he revolts against the Romans. And he wins! For three years, he rules Jerusalem for three years. And they try to take down that temple. But then, that is rebellion. I mean, they're not, God hadn't called them to do any of that. And he calls himself a false messiah. Well, he thinks he's a true messiah, but he is truly a false messiah. And so God removes his hedges of protection. Hadrian comes in after a few years, wipes out the city. And this is the end of Judaism in the Holy Land as we know it until the 1900s. Hadrian bars them from the city of Jerusalem, outlaws the practice of Judaism in this Roman province of Palestine, and exiles the Jews. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Uh, interestingly, Simon bar Kokhba is caught and recants being Messiah and is sent into exile. Um, so not what happened with Jesus. But anyway, Hadrian defeats him in 135. And then the Jewish people are barred from entering Jerusalem and they have to rethink about how to be Jewish people without any access to the holy city or the temple and with no hope of returning. So this is a period of repentance for the Jewish people. Some of them turn to Jesus. Now during all of this time, the church is fighting another battle simultaneously with this one. And it's a man named Marcion has risen up in the church at this time and he has decided that we got to get rid of the Jewish God. We're finished with the Jewish God. He got rid of the whole Old Testament, threw it out and said it wasn't the word of God. 
He went through the New Testament and edited out all the Jewish pieces he could find. And there's a lot of it. So he was left with a very small Bible. And he said, this is the Bible. That led the church during this period to try and decide, what do we do with the Jewish God? I mean, the Jewish people have been wiped out. They've been knocked out of Jerusalem. It's now illegal to practice the Jewish religion in Rome. So maybe, maybe God doesn't like the Jewish people. Maybe he's done with them. Maybe we can just get rid of all that stuff. And Marcion thought it was the case. But Marcion was wrong. The early church came together and they said, no, Jesus was Jewish. These are the prophets of Israel who gave us these books. We will continue to believe that Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who came in the flesh. And they called Marcion's beliefs heresy in 144 AD. And then the church begins the cycle again. This is what Jesus narrates as the second turn of the wheel. And again, he could have returned right then. He was at the gates, but he didn't. The wheel turns again with the Diocletian persecution in the 300s, and it goes over and over and over and over again. Just like in the Old Testament, that history of the people being given the law of God, being given prophets to tell them the truth, rebelling against those teachings, falling into judgment, repenting and turning back. As that cycle worked through Genesis, through Exodus, through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, through Joshua, through the judges, through Samuel and Kings, and it cycles again in the history of the early church again and again and again. And Jesus tells us we'll know the season of his return, but not the day or the hour does it make sense to you now we'll know the season it's always in the red to the yellow that he will return but we don't know which turn of the wheel it'll be so the church who's found itself at that period of time always thinks he's coming we are in that period of time now let's look at today's turn of the wheel briefly today it seems to me Now, it was possible for the church to be separate from our culture in the terms of how we were living. But that didn't happen in the United States. For one reason or another, the United States and the national understanding of itself united. And so at some point, the church tethered itself to the cycle of our country. And so we're on the wheel with them. We did not have to be, but we chose to be. We chose to unite ourselves with the national polity and to become an American church. We chose to do that. And so we're on the wheel now with them. We're now reaping what we've sown. I mean, that's what happens when we get united. Same thing happened to the church that united with Rome and the church that united with England. When you unite with secular culture, you're stuck on the wheel with with secular culture. But So that's where we are. And in many ways, we have joined with the rebellion of our culture. So I'm going to narrate a big wheel. This is a big wheel. I'm thinking of European culture here, not simply American culture, though American is is an expression of European culture. So in the Protestant Reformation, this is a big wheel. Again, these wheels within wheels within wheels. But they're all the same cycle over and over again. We're living the same day over and over again so that we might one day, like Bill Murray did in that movie, learn how to be nice. (laughs) And not selfish, right? How many times do we have to go around this circle before we learn to be nice? But anyway, so the Protestant Reformation happened 500 years ago. I think that's clearly a time in which the church is turning back to the word of God, which happens at the top end of every one of these cycles in history. The two that I narrated earlier and this one. But very quickly, the return to the scriptures 
began uh, to move us into rebellion because we didn't just return to the scriptures. We also rejected the church, the Roman Catholic church, but that has its trickle effects. And so we began to chase during this period of rebellion that leads right up until today. Knowledge as our false messiah, technology as our false messiah, atheism, humanism as our false messiah, the miracles of technology and medicine as the false signs of our messiahs, our corporate rejection of scripture, first by just not reading it, and now by actually supporting pastors who preach against it. Amazing. So we've lived into this period of rebellion, and we have also been experiencing greater uh, upheaval in the material, environmental, spiritual, political worlds. Uh, more people died, according to the statistics I read, in the 20th century than in all wars previously combined. You watching the cycles? I mean, we're getting smarter, more technology, facing atheism is growing. We're doing miracles of healing and modern science and technology. You carry the whole world of knowledge in something the size of the palm of your hand today. We're rejecting scripture and things are not getting better. They're getting worse. Now we blame it on global warming, but it's always been somebody else's fault. It's never ours. First it was the devil. Then it was my dad. Now it's global warming. Whatever it is, right? So I'm not saying global warming isn't happening. I'm just saying it's not the cause. That's, that's all I'm saying. It might be a symptom, but it's not the cause. So... We're living in this period in which God has removed himself. And it's been a scary period because he's not speaking so overtly to us. And things are getting rough. And I think we're right there on this cusp. We might be deep into repentance, but we're at least coming to a time of repentance. And so I said last week that the time for us now, church, is to repent. And I know that you and I want to blame the world for the way things are turning. But we united with that world a long time ago. We're on the cusp too. And we're the only ones who will repent. The wicked will never repent. The wicked, the wicked just don't do that. So as we think about Jesus' second coming, I can at the least say that the wheel has turned again. And we are back in the place, in the circle of history, in which Jesus is at the gates. Now, I don't know that he'll return. I don't know how gracious God is. He seems ridiculously gracious. We might be here another thousand years because he is so merciful that he lets the wheel keep turning. But we also know that in this season, there is only one thing for the faithful to do. And that is for us to repent. For us to return to God. For us to once again commit ourselves to the teachings of the prophets and apostles. For us once again to agree to live our lives by the organization that God has given us. To honor the Sabbath. To recognize the orientation of our schedules must put God first. Not the church first. God first. To recognize again that we should not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But during this season, we must gather together to encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. That's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. We must know our season, church. And I think we'd have to have blinders on to not see that this is the season we are in as a culture. But at every step... Jesus offers us the chance to return to the green as a body, as an individual, as a family, as a church, if we can reestablish our faithfulness to the word of God. 
We don't have to be on this wheel. We're going to get carried in this current because we're part of this world. We're in the world, but not of it. But we don't have to be so tethered to this wheel, church. But we have somehow united ourselves with secularity and we have just allowed it to happen. It's time for the church to repent and to return to the teachings of God. And that begins with you. Each of you. In the priority you give the word of God in your own families. In the upbringing of your own children and grandchildren. In the way that your devotion to God and his kingdom orients the schedule of your lives. Orients the way you talk about decisions. Orients the way that you eat and the way that you pray. And the way that you decide things. That orients your judgment of other people. That orients the way you respond when you yourself are judged. We are moving into a time where the faithful must double down on their commitment to Jesus. This is not a good time for the half committed. Jesus prophesied it twice and he was right both times and he'll be right this time. During these difficult times of withdrawal and repentance, the half committed fall away. The half committed quit. The half committed just kind of decide that this isn't what they signed up for and they begin to turn. Back to themselves, back to the false messiahs, looking for maybe human knowledge to save them from their problems or human technology to to, to give them eternal life or maybe atheism to resurrect humanity's belief in itself or maybe the miracles of modern science and technology to deliver us from our pains and our problems, but not the scriptures. The scriptures for these folks are out of date. They're the story and the record of another time and another place we know better because we're smarter. We have more technology. We're wrestling out of supernaturalism. We can already do the miracles Jesus did in our hospitals and in our psychologist's office. So who needs him? And the scriptures are pretty offensive and we don't like some of what they say. So let's just do. You, is this not the world we live in? It was the world the Jewish people lived in too. It was the world Jesus was born into. It's never not been that world. I, I, you know, I love... Scott Daniels is one of my favorite preachers. He wrote a book called Embracing Exile. It's designed to be read during Lent. I would love to lead you through it. But he, he buys into just something I can't buy into. The idea that we used to be in the kingdom of God. And now we're going into exile because we didn't do very well. We've never not been in exile. You've always been in exile. America was never a Christian nation, even if it was doing Christian things. Pagans can do Christian things. But how do I know this wasn't a Christian nation? Because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So it can't be. There can't be a kingdom of God built by humans, ratified by human law, and enforced by human police and military. Cannot be. Because his kingdom is not of this world. Now that's not to say that America wasn't informed by Christian principles. I know it was. And I have a feeling that some of the blessings we received were because of that. But this is not the kingdom of God. Never was. You're not going into exile. You've never been anywhere but exile. The problem with the church is we keep building castles in the sand and calling them great. We're like five-year-olds. Daddy, look at my castle. Can we live in it? I don't think we're going to fit in that. Oh, let's try. And then it falls down. Why, daddy, didn't you keep the walls up? Because you're building in the sand. Will you just stop? Just follow me. Follow me. This is not your home. 
You are to be faithful here. You are to help people who are drowning in the sand here. You are to be my hands and my feet. Tell people the good news that I know it's been really hard to build castles in the sand. But guess what? We're going to a place where there's wood and brick and mortar. Why don't you come with us? This is the gospel of Jesus. And in this season, the church has got to remember again who its God is. Who's your God? Who's mine? There's a great song. We're going to listen to it on Christmas Eve, Sunday morning. And it's called Clear the Stage. The Allen family actually introduced me to it. And once they gave me the song and I listened to it and I thought, oh man, this, this, is, this finishes our service on Christmas Eve morning. And one of the lyrics in that song is, anything I give all my heart to is an idol. Anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol. Anything I love is an idol. It's time to lay down the idols. Whether the idol in your life is your family, your job, your security, your safety, your fear, it's time to lay them down because there's one God of all creation. And our hope lies in Him. That's not to say that we shouldn't study. You know me well enough to know I don't believe that. I think our study can be a way of worshiping God, but it's not a way to supplant Him. It doesn't mean we can't go to medical science. I think God put all of these drugs in the world and plants and other things that are helping to heal us by his design. I think when we discover them, we give praise to God that they exist. He's given us cures and helps. But it's not a way to supplant him. It's a way to praise him. Right? But we can't go to these things as our saviors. There have been false messiahs and false saviors in every generation. And here's how I'll conclude. Some of you have been looking for the Antichrist as a person. I, I, I've lived long enough to know that Mikhail Gorbachev was called the Antichrist in my lifetime. Saddam Hussein was called in my lifetime. George Bush by some. I know you didn't know that, but you, you live here. Um, Barack Obama. Donald Trump. The thing about the scriptures is that First John tells us the Antichrist have been in the world since the first century. And that's a weird thing. Because the Antichrist is an idea. And all these leaders who participate with the idea can take on the guys. But it's an idea. And here's the idea. You can become by God, like God by eating from the tree of knowledge. You can become like God by eating from the tree of knowledge. That is the Antichrist. It's an idea. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spirits and rulers and powers, principalities of this evil age. The Antichrist is an idea. It's been with us since the Garden of Eden. And there have been many false prophets who have told you that it's true. Now granted, at the last turn of the wheel, there's going to be a significant individual who buys into that like nobody else and looks to be the savior of the world. That's what Revelation narrates. But the Antichrist has been with us since the Garden of Eden. It was the first word whispered by the serpent and it has been in tyranny over the earth since the day Jesus confronted the lie and fought it and defeated it. But you and I continue to be held sway by it. So knowledge is not the enemy of God. It's not God versus knowledge. But you cannot become like God. You cannot receive eternal life through knowledge. You cannot. That is the Antichrist. And all who are marked by it will perish under its weight. It's time, church, for you and I, as a body of believers, to return to God and hail Jesus as our only King. Heavenly Father, we go as your people 
Show us the idols. Show us the compromises. You know what they are. Would you help us to see them? Would you help us to repent? Would you help us to live into the freedom and the teachings of Jesus? Heavenly Father, I don't know if you're coming, but we know that you're at the gates again, that Jesus is at the gates again. And may he find us doing, being busy with your work in this place and not building castles in the sand and trying to make other people keep them up. Heavenly Father, help us to be faithful in our season. Help us to be salt and light. Help us to respond with kindness and grace and truth, but kindly. And help us, Heavenly Father, to bear the sins of the world with great patience, as you have, because we are afflicted by these things. And Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to turn and to return to you. Help us in our commitments to read your word again. Some of us have made those commitments hundreds of times. But, well, maybe not hundreds. I don't know how old we all are. But maybe some of us have done it hundreds of times. But many of us have done it tens of times. We have, we have started a new year and said, you know, this year I'm going to read through that thing. This year I'm going to commit myself. And something's always gotten in the way. Help us, Heavenly Father, to return to your word. So that we can discern the truth when it comes from the pulpit. And we can recognize heresy when it comes from here. So that we have a sense of how you're working in our lives as you work through the lives. Help us to have eyes to see. But the first step is for you to help us commit to seeing in the first place. Help us, Heavenly Father. We are dependent on you. And we do all this for your glory. Because you have given us a hope that lasts out beyond any of our experiences a hope beyond our physical sufferings, a hope beyond the challenges of life, a hope beyond budget and money and food and health, a hope that extends into the heavens for all eternity. Heavenly Father, I don't know how I'd make it without it. Help us to share with others the good news that we have and for those who can hear, help them to respond, Heavenly Father. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.